Father, we really thank you for the privilege of having these weeks before our public service to look into your word and to be inspired and challenged about what it means to be your people. As we start a new adventure, wanting very much to be a place where you're building your church, not where we're building a monument to man or we're following the wisdom of men. And so we've really spent time looking at your word, looking for the images, the metaphors, the teaching that help us capture who we are. And today we, we finish a look at this metaphor of being a holy nation. And I ask that you expand our horizon. Help us to think more eternal, more kingdom uh, of God as a people because of the time we're going to spend looking at it very briefly today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of coming together. Uh, for the weeks ahead of us, Father, we ask that you'll change us even as we ask you to use us to change lives all around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're back in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're capturing these images of the church. Just a reminder, we're, our premise in this most recent study, which we'll finish up next week, is that the Bible nowhere hands us a manual for what it means to be church. And that's a good thing, because 2,000 years later, most of that would be completely irrelevant to us. So instead, we see the church through metaphor, which we can carry forward into our current culture and context and see what we're meant to be. So we've been looking at this whole list of metaphors that Peter gives us. Let's begin reading again at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now we're going to read on to verse 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires, which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I know I have a penchant for review, and sometimes I can re-preach whole sermons before I get into the new stuff. So rather than do that, I'm going to jump right into this idea again of a holy nation. Last week we talked about what it means to be holy in the new, co in the new covenant. That's a family. It's not out of religion, 
the old concepts of holiness. It's out of relationship. We are children of God. He is our Heavenly Father. We are to be holy because He's holy. We aspire to it out of love. And that's what holiness means. It means set apart to God, set apart from the world around us. But now we look at the phrase nation. Now, in order to understand what it means to be a holy nation, we have to broaden our view from just being people who are part of a church to being people who are part of a kingdom, the kingdom of God. It doesn't get enough focus anymore. Somewhere along the line, we lost the idea of the gospel that Jesus preached and was also preached by the early apostles and Paul. It was called the gospel of the kingdom. And we started thinking of the church as this thing that gets all the focus rather than the instrument through which God is even today expanding his kingdom. What I'm saying to you is that we cannot be effectively the church that Jesus wants to build if we don't understand what the kingdom of God and if we don't see our place as a church in it. When I was growing up, we saw the kingdom of God essentially as something purely in the future. You know, I grew up in a, a pretty dispensational way of thinking. Our particular view growing up was pre, pre-everything, <laughs> pre-trib, pre-millennial. We were so pre, we didn't eat post-toasties for breakfast. <laughs> and somewhere along the line, we missed some things. You know, I grew up very fearful about the rapture. When I was a teenager, there was a famous movie called A Thief in the Night. Anybody remember that? How many have no idea what I'm talking about? Those are people under 30 here. Back then, um, you know, Christian movies were not really quite what they are now. I mean, this was, they depicted the whole end of the world with a cast of four. We showed it probably a dozen times at different youth rallies. And man, I went forward to accept Jesus after every showing of that movie. You've been left behind. I didn't want to be left behind. And let me just say, I do believe Jesus could come at any time. But back then, it was, I, I just lived in fear of it. Yeah, I, I worked uh, at a Bible conference um, where I was uh, on staff, and they had a prophecy week there. You know, they were talking every day, arguing fine points of the charts. I swear, some of these charts that we put together, it, it's as though if God had them, they'd be spread out at the throne, Jesus would be sitting next to them, and God the Father would be going, well, son, I'll send you back if I can ever figure this thing out. <laughs> so uh, I remember taking a nap. I, I'd been on night watch, so I, I took a nap about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm up in like the, the sixth floor of this old inn that this Bible conference had bought. And, and so I wake up, and it's about 4.30. And usually, we have this massive recreation, ball field, tennis courts. People were always doing stuff. So I go walking out, and I go walk, and, and there's nobody <laughs> out swimming or on the ball courts. And in fact, there was like a baseball mitt that had been precariously dropped on the, on the softball area and a bat and ball just sitting there strewn, you know, and so I'm thinking, it happened! <laughs> and I wasn't ready! 
we had this old clankety um, uh, elevator that got us down to the main lobby of this old hotel. So I, I climbed in the elevator, I pushed in the button, and, and the doors closed, and that ride down to the bottom seemed like it took forever. The doors open, I come running out, the lobby's empty, the snack shop's empty, I go around to the front desk, there's a girl there. If anybody was left behind, it was going to be her. She was a troublemaker. So I'm white as a ghost, and she said, what's wrong? I said, where is everybody? And she said, well, they're over in the afternoon session. Oh, I forgot. During Prophecy Week, they had afternoon sessions. But I wasn't completely at peace till I walked over there and saw my father standing up, arguing for a finer point of the pre-tribulational position that I believed I was safe for now. We actually had such a view of prophecy in the kingdom that we believe that the Bible really didn't see the church age. The Old Testament prophets didn't see it. It's the only way we could explain the church as something different from the kingdom. What we presented was this idea that the prophets only saw looking forward in time as though we're at a mountain range looking across at the mountains and we see the tips of the mountains but we don't see the valleys. The church age was just something the prophets missed. Sort of this parenthetic age. And when they saw the kingdom, they saw the kingdom now, and then they saw the kingdom to come as separate mountain peaks and miss the church. And so we believe that most of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom was irrelevant to us. He was offering the kingdom to the Jews, and they didn't take it. And now we're in the age of grace and someday the kingdom's going to come and it's going to pick up again what the prophets saw. Well, think about this. The age of the church now is longer than the time from Abraham to Christ. It's really hard to look at this period and to suggest that this has been all just something that God never revealed to anybody. See, that's one of those backdoor conclusions we make because of some uh, existing assumptions. And the existing assumptions are that the kingdom of God is something other than who we are. But to go back and see what Christ had to say is to understand that yes, there is a kingdom reality in our future. But the kingdom also is now. Listen to me. There's a reason why Jesus is right now called Christ. And the Jews understood completely what that word meant. It meant Messiah, the one who would come to establish his kingdom. And when Peter stood on the day of Pentecost and said, This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. That was not just a title. That was a declaration of the reign of the Messiah. And when we refer to Jesus as Christ, every time we say Jesus Christ, we are referring to the one who reigns as the promised Messiah, the one who rules over the kingdom. We have to begin to see that the kingdom of God is now. Jesus certainly saw it that way. Let me take you to John chapter 18. This is when Jesus is before Pilate. He is being accused of being the king of the Jews. 
to those listening, that meant an earthly kingdom. That's why Pilate saw him as a threat. He's the king of the Jews. Then, then he's a threat to our rule as, as the Roman Empire, the Roman kingdom. Those who were followers of Jesus saw him as bringing an earthly kingdom now. They were constantly asking him, when, when are you going to establish the earthly kingdom, the reign? Those that were Jewish leaders who were against Jesus saw him as a pseudo-Christ because they saw a future earthly kingdom. And when Pilate questions Jesus about this, we have this interesting conversation. Let's just pick it up at verse 33 for sake of time. Pilate went back inside, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, is that your own idea, or did others talk to you about it, about me? Pilate says, am I a Jew? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Are you a threat? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you setting yourself up as a revolutionary to rebel against us and to bring an earthly kingdom? This is Jesus' response. My kingdom, what's it say? is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. 37. You are king then. Jesus said, you are right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So here is one of what you will find a very consistent set of teaching from Jesus. That the kingdom that he's talking about is not a physical realm. It's not a physical kingdom. Let's look at some other things that Jesus does. Look with me at, at the Gospel of Mark. We just read something towards the end of his ministry. Now we're going to trace back to the beginning of his ministry. Mark chapter 4. Luke 4, I'm sorry. Luke chapter 4. Jesus has just had his temptation in the wilderness experience. He's now come and he returns to Nazareth, which is where he was raised. He's a homeboy. And he goes into the, the synagogue, which is a place where he probably worshipped as a young man. And we pick up at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now before we talk about this, let me just kind of lay this out. The scripture is the most precious piece in the synagogue life. So those scriptures, those scrolls were precious. They were locked away. And then they were pulled out and with great care rolled out. So it may very well have been that in God's timing, this was the scripture actually already previously determined to be read. It could also be that Jesus himself went to this passage. But let's read it and then watch very carefully what Jesus says at the end. Verse 18. This is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. Now, that's a passage that is calling for the coming and fulfillment of the kingdom. Everybody reading would know that that was an allusion to the Christ who would come and he would bring the kingdom, that it would be declared the year of our Lord. What does Jesus say? Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, if you have NIV, say it with me. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This was Jesus' gospel. We know in um, Mark chapter 4 that Jesus went about preaching, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. Jesus referred to that as the gospel of the kingdom. And he said to his disciples that there is a time when I'm going to return, there is going to be an end, there is going to be at some point a, an eternal kingdom. But before that can happen, he says, quote, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all peoples on earth, and then the end will come. So in other words, the gospel that Jesus told us to go and preach, when he said, go and preach the gospel to every living creature, is this gospel of the kingdom. And our task is to bring it to every part of the world, and, and the full culmination of what God's going to do in establishing an eternal kingdom won't happen until that's done. So do you understand that? What are some of the other things I want to talk about? Jesus' teaching was predominantly about the kingdom of God. He had a present, the kingdom is, and yet in the kingdom, in the future. So he spoke about something present and yet something forward. After Jesus' resurrection, when he fulfills the work of redemption and reconciliation through the cross and is raised again, what is the dominant thing scripture says Jesus teaches his disciples about? The kingdom. Now let's go forward. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. He says, go and preach the good news, the Evangelion, the gospel of the kingdom to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always. And if you were to take a reading through the book of Acts, which is the first years of the church, what you would find is that that's exactly what they do. From the very first sermon, Peter proclaims the Christhood of Jesus, the, the present reality of the reign of Christ. Follow forward as Paul teaches, and you'll be amazed once you see it, how frequently Paul's message is referred to as teaching the kingdom of God. For the sake of time, I want to take you to the last chapter of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28. This is, this is a, it's hard because I'm just, I'm, I'm giving you such a snapshot of this. And uh, it's something that is prolific throughout the, the New Testament. 
if you really are interested in taking a search for it, you'll see the whole context of Jesus' ministry, the context of the birth of the church and the teachings of the church is all rooted in the gospel of the kingdom, of being kingdom people. This is the last snapshot we have of Paul. And what do we see happening at the end? He finally makes it to Rome. And he's put in a house. And there, even though he is physically fettered, the gospel is released. It is unfettered. And many people come to Christ. Verse 28. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they also listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. And this is the last thing we see Paul doing. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached. What does he preach? The kingdom of God. And taught about what? The Lord Jesus Christ. What's our theme verse as we go forward? Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, just as you received Christ... Jesus as Lord continue to live in him. You see the link here? The whole idea, our whole designation of who Jesus is, is built on the apostles and Christ's own teaching that the kingdom of God is something that we are now a part of. And yet there is still a future culmination that John looks to in the book of Revelation when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So what we have is this setup of these two kingdoms. The kingdom of God that has actually always been. And then the kingdom of this world that was a result of the fall of man. And the great story of scripture and the good news is God through Christ reconciling lost men Men, women, children who are part of a different kingdom, a kingdom of this world, redeeming them from that, saving them, and pulling them back into his kingdom. That's the work of the gospel that we're called to. So, with all that said and done, if, we've, if we acknowledge the fact that we spend far too much time thinking of the kingdom as a future reality, not a present significant thing and therefore focus on the church too much for its own sake how do we recover an idea of seeing the church in the context of the kingdom two ways first question what is the kingdom of God today first question right whatever happens in the future that's one thing but what is the kingdom of God today and second what is the church in the context of it so the first question, what is the kingdom of God? Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is not of this world. See, here is what brings it to light. The word for kingdom is basileia. We make the same mistake that Pilate made that the followers of Jesus and the enemies of Jesus made. We think of kingdom as a physical thing, as something with borders and a capital and a region over which someone exerts authority. That's what we think of when we think of kingdom. That's what Constantine turned the church into. He turned the kingdom of God into a kingdom of man 
we still make that same mistake. We don't, we think of kingdom as a physical reality. The word basileia actually means the act of reigning. So when we say Jesus is Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord, we are actually proclaiming the reality of the reign of Christ. That's what the Bible means when it refers to the kingdom. It's the rule of God exercised through the lordship of Jesus Christ. And when we preach the gospel, what we are saying to people is what Jesus said to people. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. That's the good news that we're called to teach. That we can actually be part of a new kind of people. Be citizens of a new kind of kingdom that isn't about physical limitations. But is an eternal reality. So where is the kingdom of God today? The kingdom of God today is wherever Jesus reigns. And if Jesus reigns in your heart, then the words of Jesus are true. The kingdom of God is where? Within you. So what is the church in the context of the kingdom of God? Who could think of a particular passage of Jesus' teaching where the phrase church and kingdom are said together that might help us understand the church's role in terms of the kingdom. Anybody? Very good. You get a gold star today. Matthew chapter 16. <laughs> We've been in this passage a few times because it's pivotal for us to understand to create a theology of the church. Right? So we've been at this verse a few times. We, we went to it when, when we were looking at ourselves as living stones. Peter is the prototype because he's the first to profess Christ Jesus as Lord. Jesus said, that's right, that profession is the bedrock on which I'm going to build my church. That's the cornerstone. And we saw Peter's own understanding of that in the passage we read again this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. But now I want you to see what Jesus says about the church in terms of the kingdom of God. Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God this whole time. That is not lost to anyone with him when he says this. Verse 13, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Which, by the way, is what happens with all of us who profess that Jesus is Christ, the son of the living God. We don't arrive by it, except that God enables us to understand and proclaim that. Moving forward. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, remember what we said, Peter is Petros, means little stone. Sort of like calling him Rocky, giving him a new name because he's the prototype of all living stones. And then he says, on this rock, Petros, which is bedrock, I will build my church. That's the declaration of Jesus as Lord in Christ. So Jesus is going to build his church. Now we're going to read on. And the gates of Hades 
will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of what? The kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then at this time he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. All right, so we've painted an interesting picture. I, you know, I'm kind of looking at your faces out there, seeing how much you're tracking this. It may have opened up more questions than I've given answers. Some of you might be thinking, I still don't get why this is relevant. <laughs> so let me try that landed for you. Jesus proclaimed in his coming the coming of the kingdom of God. He taught what life in the kingdom was to be. Being the Christ, God making it possible now for men to move from the kingdom of this world into his kingdom, which is now near because Christ came near, by faith and trust in him. Based on that proclamation, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the church is God's agent to expand the kingdom of God into the kingdom of this world. The church has the authority of Christ himself in the kingdom. We are given the keys to the kingdom. So today, how do you enter the kingdom of God? You enter it by being born into the family of God. The church is the entry point into the kingdom of God today. The church is the vehicle by which the kingdom is expanded. Jesus said, go, go and make disciples of every nation. Our message is the message of the kingdom of God. So with everything I've painted for you, now look at 1 Peter 2 verses 11 and 12. And remember that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desire which war against your souls. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. See, if we're citizens of a different kingdom than the kingdom in which we happen to find ourselves living, we're aliens. And we're strangers. That's a legal term. That's a technical term of its day for what it meant to be people who were not citizens of the kingdom in which they lived, but were citizens of another kingdom. Peter is saying, how do we conduct ourselves that way? Paul's take on that is to call us ambassadors for Christ. And that's one interesting picture. You know, we're setting up an embassy and we're representing the kingdom of God into the kingdom of this world. My mentor, Bob Frederick, and I were talking about two months ago about the kingdom. And he came up looking at Peter's idea of living as aliens and strangers in this world. Bob came up with this phrase that I think is magnificent. He said, I think we need to picture ourselves as a kingdom colony. A kingdom colony. We are citizens of the kingdom. We are a spiritual community living out that kingdom while being aliens and strangers in a world around us. Just imagine if we took that metaphor, that image, and started thinking through how that means we are to function as the colony, the kingdom colony in this region, being the ambassadors of Christ to the world around us. 
The way Peter puts it is, there's a way we need to live. We need to live the kingdom life. We need to practice kingdom life. We are under the authority of the king, even though we're here in this colony. We live under his authority. We have kingdom work to do. We need to invite others into this community. Make no mistake, this particular kingdom is definitely out for world domination, but because of the grace and love of God which compels us. I love that thought. It opens up so much of scripture to understand that the kingdom is not something we long for alone, that we wait for, that Jesus reigns, and where he reigns, the kingdom is. And our job is to extend that reign through the good news of the gospel. Let's just pray about that. So Father, there's so much more we could say about this because it's really the theme of the book. I'm thinking of Jesus' words, that even prayer for your people is about praying for the kingdom to come, to continue to be extended, and then it's defined as your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what we want, Father. We're praying for your kingdom to become a reality in our lives. That your will, your purposes, your desires are accomplished in and through us, even as they are right now in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.